This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey everyone, before we get started with today's show, we wanted to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to get started, Hustle's also a great program to help make your ideas come to life. For only $15 a month, part of the program will be receiving personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, etc., etc. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Look in today's description box for this episode and find out more, but that's bwhustle.com slash join. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. This week, I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Amira Rose Davis and Jessica Luther, as well as special guests, best friend of the show, flamethrower Dr. Frank Gordini, who is associate professor of history and African-American and African diasporic studies at Columbia University, a big, big tennis nerd and author of the very, very, very soon hot off the presses University of Texas Press book, The Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics. So special welcome um, to the show this week. We are super excited. We are going to talk about Texas. Why Texas? Why? It was like the hell of COVID, but just condensed in a real terrible way, a life-threatening, immediate way. And like no one could tell you what was happening. You could read the frustration. We are also going to be covering a little bit of the Australian Open, which gave us a lot of joy. We will burn all of the things in sports this week that have been racist, sexist, and otherwise offensive. We will celebrate people doing wonderful things, and we'll talk about both what we're watching and what's good in our world. Before all that, I want to ask my, my squad today, if you were or are a practicing Catholic and you had to give up something for Lent, what would it be? Amira. First, I want to, um, you know, lodge my complaint with management that you did not give me space at the top of the show to talk about Reggae Jean and Bad Bunny on SNL. Because first of all, <laughs> I think Jessica said it was like the Amira and Brenda of SNL episodes. And also... <laughs> It was a gem. Like, she shanties with them, yes. gem. Talking about driver's license and breaking down the high school musical, the musical, love triangle drama, gems. Okay? So that complaint has been lodged. Um, I just thought we'd make people wait, Amira. Wait for I just for thought it would be at the end of the show. <laughs> okay. Wait for all of the fun we're going to have. Okay, okay. Well, to answer your question, I don't know if anybody saw the tweet that was like, can we just give up for Lent or do we have to be more specific? <laughs> and that's about where I am. So that, that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Fair enough, fair enough. Short but sweet. Uh, Jessica. This one was hard for me to think of because I feel like it's just been a year of giving things up without without a choice in it. So I, I brought Aaron into it and I was like, what would I give up? And he started listing things that just made me cringe at the idea of it. He was like, you could give up coffee. You could give up wine. And then I screamed at him when he said that you could give up romance novels. So I was like, How this dare game, How this dare game is over. The game is over now. So I guess. Ejected. Yeah. So I guess that. I don't know. I don't know if I could do it, but that would be the <laughs> stuff that would really make me sacrifice. Oh, Frank? 
I'm so excited to be here as a as a first time a guest. Um, this notion of Lent is pretty foreign to me. You know, I'm a Caribbean Latino, uh, black background, uh, but we were I was raised in a Puerto Rican Pentecostal church or those sorts of religious traditions, where people cite a lot of scripture, uh, get touched by the Spirit, and and that's their you know their performance of, of religiosity. Uh, sometimes they fast. But in this case, uh, if, if I was to really, really try, I, I would love to give up Twitter for Lent. It's that, um, you know, that thing in our lives that we, we need, we use, but we really don't like. At least that's, I'll, I'll, I'll speak for myself. So that, that's what I would say, Twitter. You can speak for all of us, Frank, <laughs> on that front. <laughs> Although if any of you left Twitter, I would be so sad because that's how I know what you're thinking about all the time. So I would be happy for you, but I would be sad for me. Um, I, that dovetails into mine, Frank, which is Facebook. And I'll just say, um, you know, I'm not going to be shy about it. Mostly that's my family's fault. Um, not even my friends or colleagues. Like, like I don't even care because my cousins will never listen to this. You're horrible on Facebook. Um, <laughs> you have horrible political views. You have, your choices are questionable. I'm not even sure we'd be, like, even marginal friends. But if I could have a Facebook that was just people's accomplishments, like their book covers or even just their accomplishments, like I went outside today, their pets and their families or babies or kids stuff, I would be happy and I would stay on. But all the rest of it I want, I want off. So thanks, everybody, for playing. It seems we're actually probably not giving up anything. You know, we, we've been living a deprived life, if, if those of us who have been fortunate to, to survive uh, since last year. You know, so the notion of giving up more stuff, uh, you know, is, is really hard for me to comprehend. Uh, you know, although I know folks do it and I applaud them, but I can't. <laughs> I know, I know. Now. Thank you so much for joining us. Power outages continue to keep Texans in the dark amid frigid temperatures. A temperature of 14 degrees. That was it. The effects of the storm leaving food and safe drinking water in short supply for millions of Texans. Omar Villafranca is in Dallas. Omar, any good news for us? Not quite yet. So many pipes and water mains. Last week, Texas experienced a deep freeze that prompted a collapse of the power grid, serving large parts of the state, leaving millions powerless, waterless. Millions were impacted. Some died and many, many suffered. I am joined by three people who have lived, studied, and cared about Texas for a long, long time and have also used sport as a way to understand the particulars of the place. Before getting into an analysis, I just want to ask my co-hosts, um, how they and their families are doing. And I'll start with Jessica because you're currently living there. How are mm-hmm. you and how are things around you? I was prepping for this and thinking like, how do I even answer this question? I mean, we are fine. So Aaron and I were fortunate for reasons that we don't understand and we will probably never understand. Uh, we did not lose power except for like one blip one night for about three minutes. Uh, and then we never lost water. And we did have a frozen pipe situation, but we figured that out with about three hours of panic involved. Uh, And it's strange because, like, literally the neighbor across the street lost power. People four houses down lost power. Uh, We've heard all kinds of stories. Like, someone on the other end of my neighborhood, who I didn't realize until days into this, had lost power for days. She was a new mother with a baby. Uh, So we're okay uh, is, I guess, the most important thing. But they're... I mean, we were super fortunate, and I feel like I want to say that over and over again because there's a guilt associated with this, even though I understand that it's not in my control. Uh, But at the same time, it was a really stressful and intense week, worrying every second that you were about to lose your ability to heat your house in freezing temperatures, uh, possibility that you wouldn't have water, and like, did we have enough water to survive? We could not drive on the roads, so that was a huge thing at the beginning. We offered this room I'm actually sitting in while we're recording. We offered this room to friends of ours who live maybe two miles away, but the roads were so, they had lost power and the roads were so treacherous that, you know, we didn't know if they were going to be willing to drive over, which they found. Luckily, they found a a, a friend had a vacant apartment. Um, So there was a lot of that kind of worry. and, And then, of course, there's COVID. So there was always this underlying fear of letting someone into your house. We've spent 
a year now sort of building up these walls and boundaries and all sorts of things in order to protect ourselves, especially in our house, uh, that this is like our safe space. And so the idea of letting people in. So it was always like, you can come over. We're all masked up. You'll go in the room. We'll close the door. No one will be in here. Like, like we'll be separated. Just kind of like having to think about that protocol was a lot too. And I'm very nervous about what we're going to see in COVID numbers in a couple of weeks and like what that will mean for resources in a city, in a state that's already taxed as it is. I mean, there was a hospital, children's hospital here that lost power and there were stories about them using kitty litter in order for people to be able to use the bathroom. There's all the stories about people dying and just the suffering I it feels weird because I don't want to tell my friends stories because it's their their story so it feels very personal to them but like I know people who you know 80 hours with two kids and 38 degree temperatures in their house and I just I don't know it was just incredibly stressful and then I will just say like it was really hard to read the shit on social media we just talked about giving up Twitter and I think Twitter was a lifeline for people, too. It certainly was for me, if you were watching my Twitter account, like um, being able to get information and understand what was happening. The government collapsed. Like we were getting almost no information. We did not know when it would end. That was another. It was like the it was like the hell of COVID, but just condensed in a real terrible way, a life threatening immediate way and like no one could tell you <laughs> what was happening. You could read the frustration in journalists. Uh, tweets and reporting about like how we knew nothing um, but didn't also just reading people saying like we deserved this because of voting which I have you know for years just everything about that is so disgusting but like in order to take in the little information I could get I also had to be on the platform where people were also saying those terrible things as I'm reading text messages from friends who are suffering greatly uh, the last thing that I really want to say is that uh, just a shout out to the community and to mutual aid in the state. The government, like, uh, in lots of ways, just let us down immensely. And it was really people looking out for other people. All I heard from friends were about how they were finding their neighbors and their friends and their family who were helping them, that were getting to them, that were figuring out. I do want to give a special shout out here in Austin to city council members who really came through talking about local government, Greg Kazar and Natasha Harper-Madison. I counted on them to give us the information we needed. And like at one point I saw someone tweet that her brother who was diabetic had one can of beans left in his apartment and she didn't know like what was going to happen. And I immediately tagged Greg and Natasha and they responded within two minutes to tell them like what they could do in order to get help. And I just was really thankful that there was someone that I could turn to because I didn't I didn't know who else, like, where where do we go? Like, where do we go for answers? And that feeling was real shitty for a long time. I will say right now we're recording on Sunday morning. I looked out the window this morning and there's no more snow or ice on the ground. And that the feeling of relief yesterday when we could really see that it was going away, uh, it was a nice feeling. And Frank, you also have family in Texas. Are they doing all right? Yeah, I have a family and friends uh, in Texas, and you know, uh, thankfully, most of them are doing fine. Um, you know, I lived there from 2004 to 2015 when I came back to New York, and um, so I have a lot of deep connections there. My in-laws are mostly in San Antonio. My friends, and you know, in, in various parts of the state. And, you know, the experiences, although there's a random, you know, aspect of, you know, like you experience this power outage and water outage, you know, depending upon the grid you were on, but but their experience is pretty much correlated to the socioeconomic status, right? So that uh, if in San Antonio, if you lived on the south side of the city, uh, uh, you were more likely to not have power and water, as many of my family members are, than people on the north side, the more affluent side of town, right? So, yeah, my in-laws were out power and water for a week. They were fortunate enough to stay somewhere. They were fortunate to have been vaccinated, so there was no COVID anxiety. But, you know, much of this last week has been just another stretch of this combination of anger, survival guilt, sadness, uh, you know, um, feeling infuriated at, at another injustice, right? Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, from afar, that's the way we experience it here. And, and, and also, this is, this is a region that's not accustomed to winter in general. So like a, a typical little ice storm, shuts things down. That would just be a joke. You know, I'm a Northeasterner originally, and I, I used to laugh at seeing the city of Austin just stop when there'd be, a, you know, like a little ice storm. So now you've got a situation like this of nine degree temperatures and a serious storm, coupled with the, the unpreparedness of, of the state and, you know, the power system, um, just made it a, an absolute disaster. 
And it was really hard to see that suffering from afar and contribute to the amazing, um, you know, of course, uh, mutual aid effort. And that's inspiring. And that's a part of Texas that people often overlook, the kind of real progressive uh, mutual aid cultures and politics that emanate from those movements and those communities. But nonetheless, it just felt like yet another, you know, injustice that we were witnessing from afar in my case. Thanks, Frank. Uh, Mira. Yeah, um, it's a long week. My sister was without power for a few days. Uh, my mom thankfully never left, lost power, but um, lost water for a while. When it came back on, it was brown, which, you know, shouldn't be the color of water. Um, I think the most uh, stressful part is, uh, and this is true, like when the hurricanes come too, is like not being able to find people. So we went about two days without finding my great aunt and trying to figure out if she had um, heat. Uh, and we got, we actually just got a text on the family group chat that she's good. They have these like old school gas heaters, <laughs> thankfully. So that, you know, it's so frustrating. It's just, you know, I, I've talked about this before, um, you know, when the last hurricane hit, but like feeling like you can't do anything is like a really frustrating feeling for me and being far away, but like watching this happen and then being concerned with all of these kind of overlapping things, um, and so I'm really thankful that everybody right now is okay. My sister's area still doesn't have power, but she's at a friend's house. Um, so that's good. But as Jess said, then you start worrying about COVID and and all of these kind of overlapping and overlaying things. Um, my dad got the hell out of Texas, got in his rig and drove when the storm started coming in. So he's just kind of circling, waiting to be able to come home. Um, but it's hard um, when you see stories of people who weren't as lucky. The story that has been haunting me um, is out of Sugarland, where um, a family trying to keep warm uh, resulted in their house catching on fire, and it resulted in the death of um, their three kids, five, eight, and 11, as well as the 75-year-old grandmother who was living with the family. And that is, there's no words, really, for... Um, for that and for the way that all of this was avoidable um it's it's infuriating it's absolutely infuriating and since we do like to look at slivers of joy i would just echo you know what jess said about mutual aid i want to give a shout out to my good friends in austin actually las ofrendas who who've even while being taxed themselves given out 1500 meals um and it's it's just a testament to the strength and resiliency of people. Um, but I mean, I'm just burning with a rage that, that can't, that I can hardly articulate because the people shouldn't need to continue to do the work of the state. Like, as we say so many times, it's a failed fucking state. Like how many more examples do we need? And it's just, I'm just beyond. Speaking of the failed state, then this is an incredibly wealthy state and frank in in your new book and in your work we see a lot of sports patriarchs like lamar hunt and this wealthy oil clique making the sun belt in the 1970s in the 1980s do we see their footprints on the priorities of infrastructure on these failures Absolutely. Not not so much the, the, the historically, you know, powerful um, families like the Hunt family and Sid Richardson and the Murkisons and families like that. But but the domination of the oil energy elite uh, drives so much of uh, Texas politics, economy and society. Right. So in that sense, absolutely. Right. I mean, uh, you know, and, and there's a really good essay in the Texas Monthly um, by Jeffrey Ball on the intricacies of the failures of, of the state, in particular, what went wrong with the uh, with the power grids. Um, but yes, this is this is a, this is a state and a region that's dominated by the, the energy elite, right? Uh, and and their you know their desires for great profits and that drives policy in tandem with the Republican dominated state legislature, right? This is essentially a one party state. Texas plays a decisive role in the reconstitution of Republican Party politics in the 1960s and 70s. And you can see this exemplified in the ascendancy of George H.W. Bush and then his son afterwards, right? The Bush family remake themselves from a Connecticut elite North New England family into an oil energy powerhouse that then do that dominates state politics and then eventually national politics, right? So, I mean, that's the story here, the story of this, of this combination of the energy elite, you know, in tandem with the dominant, you know, Republican Party that's in control through gerrymandering, right? 
you know, this is not a society that if, if people had a right to vote, that the Republicans would dominate the way they do. But because of gerrymandering over and over again, we see their dominance in, in the policies that we see with respect to everything, right? And this combination of pro-business, uh, oil elite, you know, coupled with the kind of white grievance politics that, you know, really takes shape in the aftermath of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and 70s. And that explains the kind of political dynamic that we see, you know, to this day. And I would just add on to that, like, if you have not seen the maps of Texas gerrymandering, that's worth like looking to see, like, just go look up Austin, the way that they have made sure that Austin does not have too much Democratic Party representation uh, on the federal level is uh, immense. I mean, we this is Tom DeLay's home base, right? Like we are the home base of gerrymandering. And so Frank is just, of course, 100% right on how this works. But definitely go look at those maps. They're they're entertaining in their sadness and, and how mad they will make you. But this is just to underscore what Jess was saying earlier about what it feels like then to have people say, well, maybe don't vote red or red state. Mm-hmm. Again, Texas is not mm-hmm. a red state. It's a gerrymandered and suppressed state, like most of the states in the South. And like it's particularly frustrating because of the size of Texas. I think, Jessica, you made this point really importantly, that there's more people who voted right Democratic in, in, in the state of Texas than in whole ass fucking blue states that you conceptualize in your mind. And the idea of a blue state and a red state in, in the first place is fucking stupid. But, like, I think that it's really important to understand, especially within the infrastructure of Texas, especially, like, where my family is in southeast Texas, it's completely, like, the one of the biggest, you know, priorities is, like, how can we declaw and, like, completely suppress this entire part of the state because just because of how much um, kind of political potency there is in that area. And it's, ugh, yes. And this is not to put too much faith in the Democratic Party. So let's no. just <laughs> let's no. just be clear that when we're talking too about, you know, suppression of vote, we're talking about the ability to change the shape of the way politicians respond to communities and the power of certain communities to hold them accountable. Precisely. Um, so we're certainly not suggesting that flipping blue to red or red to blue um, is, you know, the answer, but disenfranchising whole swaths of the population go beyond that. And so that leads us into a perfect discussion about racial inequities in the state, because that's what so much of this is about. And I want to ask all three of you, but I'm going to start with Frank. Um, If there's a way in which your research and your experience in Latinx and African-American history in sport sheds and it doesn't need to be about sport but I just know you're coming from that place sheds light on the plight of communities of color during crisis and how does that help us understand what's happening right now yeah yeah I mean uh, a question that we're banning about is you know what um is sort of you know how Texas is representative or not of, of, of what's gone on in the United States I mean it like the rest of the United States it's a, it's a, it's a society steeped in settler colonialism and Jim Crow a slavery and Jim Crow segregation, right, and and anti-Mexican violence and, and discrimination, and that's that's what makes it interesting, insofar as that you've got you know a society that's steeped in the kind of what we associate with the South, slavery, you know, plantation slavery, you know, Jim Crow segregation, along with you know the the relationships between Anglo and Mexican origin and Latinx uh, peoples, and that's that legacy stays with us to this day, right, um, and and yet it's interesting because then you see, you know, like this goes to the discussion earlier about voting, you know, so much of the discussion, you know, from New York Times uh, types journalists is trying to figure out why some Latinx people vote for the Republican Party, uh, and and they don't have a real fundamental understanding of, of the way in which the colonial system in Texas has worked, right? It incorporates certain Hispanics, you know, white identified Hispanics into a, a system of domination by the Anglo elites. Right. So you see that in the history of sport, no doubt. You know, so desegregation of sport, you know, is happening in Texas deep into the 1970s mm-hmm. and 80s. Right. I mean, Buzz Bissinger's you know, classic book, Friday Night Lights, shows mm-hmm. it very clearly. And sport plays a key role in the reconstitution uh, of, of a white elite around sports. Right. At the same time, sports plays a, a huge role in the survival of, of black communities and Mexican origin communities in Texas. Right. I mean, one of the things that I saw when I was there is this vibrant you know, black sporting culture that existed in the Jim Crow era, right, at the high school level and into the collegiate level when, with HBCUs, what we call now HBCUs, right, the Texas Southerns and the Prairie Views and other schools, the, the bishops, et cetera. And so, you know, you, you have that history of, of survival and resilience, right, you know, around sport and around other black institutions and Mexican, you know, American institutions as well. And, and I think that, you know, sometimes we lose sight of that 
you know, part of the story of Texas, right? I mean, you know, when people talked about Beto's candidacy a couple of years ago, what was striking was less him, but more the kind of Texas that you saw coming out around his candidacy. It was really interesting. It reminded me when I was there with the Wendy Davis uh, filibuster, the very famous filibuster against the, you know, the yet another draconian abortion law by the Republican state legislature. And one of the things that I, I having been at the Capitol that day, was to see the enormous energy from, you know, across racial energy, you know, gathered around this, this, this horrible law. And, and, that's, and that's the part of Texas that we need to see more of, or we will see, that we, we who are on the outside need to pay more attention to, right? And I think that we get too caught up in, in understandably in kind of, you know, like looking at Texas as a backward place. And, and in many ways, it seems like that from afar. But, but there's, there is this long history of, of community survival and resistance that's there that will emerge yet again, probably out of this crisis, I would think. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I want to speak a little bit about Austin just because I know it the best and that's what I've studied and, of course, where I live. Uh, I wrote a piece however many years ago whenever Charlie Strong was hired here uh, about race and football in Austin. Uh, Charlie Strong was then only the third black head coach at the University of Texas. Now we've had, what, four? <laughs> We're up to four now. Uh, that to tell you enough about what you need to know about racial inequality in, in the state. But I, I wrote about Anderson High which was a black high school on the east side of, of Austin. The east, we call it the east side because there's literally a highway, Highway 35, through the middle of town. Um, back, I want to say it's 1928, Austin City Council passed a law or rule or whatever saying that all people of color, mainly black people, had to live on the east side of town. And if they did not, they would not have services. And there was like a little pocket on the west side of town that – held out and they didn't have roads until like the 1970s like they meant it when they said that they would not provide services and so we have this deeply segregated geography here and we had this very famous black high school anderson high uh, and then they shut it down in order to try to figure out um how to desegregate everything and then they reopened in anderson high actually near where i live which tells you something about me and where i live uh and then left everything behind except the name they even got rid of the mascot and everything but anderson high had the best football team probably in the definitely in the state uh at one point and i wrote about all of this because in 1942 there was one white high school and one black high school in austin and they both won the state championship uh and i was just trying to tie charlie into this long uh segregation within the city. But I, I want to tie this into what happened last week. There was a picture that went around. Uh, there were lots of pictures of downtowns lit up while everyone was blacked out in all kinds of cities here in Texas. But there was one that someone posted, a, a reporter here, and it was looking south on 35 towards downtown. And on the right is this bright downtown. And on the left is the deep, dark black of East Austin. Uh, and Yes. And like Austinites looked at that picture and we're like, yeah, of course. Like there's something we all understand about how the city is set up, uh, specifically not to take care of that historically black part of the city, which is now being gentrified. So it's it's this complicated space in and of itself. But like I had a friend who lost power immediately, like as soon as they said we're going to roll blackouts, they lost power. And when I was talking, texting with him, he was like, I knew it because we live in a poor part of town. Like I, I had no doubt that we were the first ones to go. And and he was right. So I just think all of those things were in play and they have such long historical roots and you can physically see them, especially we could physically see it this week with who had resources and who didn't. I mean, I think that the question of resources, like when I think about this and I think of the layering, I think about the the groups that are already so marginalized within these places, right? I think of homeless and housing insecure people. I think of undocumented people. I think of people who are already living in in areas that are are um, struggling for for energy and and resource needs on any given Tuesday. Um, and and the first to kind of feel the brunt of this um, when it is something on a large scale like we're seeing this past week. And I think what's so interesting and what's so great about, you know, all of the way that you're laying out the infrastructure of Texas is that what we're able to do is then map on sports as another institution in Texas, because it is, I think Frank's book points to this too. Like if we think about the sporting infrastructure and sports as an institution within the state, it can really help us understand and, and kind of tease out a lot of these systemic 
um, really deeply foundational ingrained systems of inequity. Um, and, and the other thing with sports, um, that, that has in my mind, and, and I talked about this after the last hurricane is how quickly they're also weaponized to like do the work of trying to bring a community back or at least rhetorically act like everything's fine and harmonious and kumbaya again. And so I told the story of, you know, the, the football officials who are like in the middle of COVID and also the hurricane had just blown the bleachers over and their school had no roof, but they were like, hell yeah, we're going to play. Cause like, that's, what's going to bring us back together. And so I'm wondering now as we're sitting here, right. Football season at least, you know, has passed, but like, I'm almost like waiting for like, what is the, what is the sports thing that's going to be marshaled to be the kind of recovery lap or the kind of rhetorical community reifying thing that happens, knowing that what, what community they're pulling together is still leaving the most marginalized kind of on the outskirts unless they can perform athletically on the field. My friend who's a statesman reporter yesterday on Instagram, I get on and he's like in Arlington for a baseball game. Right. And I was like, I'm sorry, you have yeah. a baby and you lost power for days? Like, are you're in Arlington? And mm. he was doing his job. They were they were playing baseball. And then the other thing was um, we're doing basketball games this weekend. And they announced that there would not be uh, any fans in the stands because they didn't want to tax resources. And I was like, there should have been fans yeah, COVID is taxing resources. Like, I don't. I just don't understand any of it, but they like sports will sports will go on. Yeah. And, and for that reason, right, we saw how uh, Major League Baseball had its postseason in Arlington. And I think one of the college football games, right, were in Arlington as well. If I remember right, I didn't watch. And we're going to have the Women's College March That's Madness right, here. San Antonio. Right. Just a few weeks yes. from now. What a mess that's looking like. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It, the other thing I was going to say in terms of, you know, on the one hand, you know, as a historian, you know, three historians on this podcast, you can anchor so much of what we're seeing here in this longer history. But a lot of it is a, this more recent history, too, of gentrification. I mean, one of the things you saw this very, very palpably in Austin when I was there. And I admit I was a colonizer. I arrived from, from afar in 2004. But the absolute remaking of that city you know, which had been, you know, kind of a hippie arts uh, haven, you know, with, with interesting music scene to this, you know, this kind of city that looked like Portland and other cities across the country that are catered to a white affluent demographic from the coasts, right? Uh, from the Californias, from the Brooklyns, moving to Austin and driving property, you know, uh, prices, you know, skyrocketing, right? And then also just transforming the culture further whitening the east side, you know, in, in ways that it was already existing before. So, I mean, this goes to something Brenda said earlier about, you know, like just thinking about this as a red-blue thing is, is, is simplistic because so much of the inequity has really been reinscribed by these folks who are moving from the coasts, you know, uh, and, and, and remaking these cities into even more white and affluent, you know, catered, um, you know, urban centers, suburban centers. That makes me think of Elon Musk showing up very recently and coming from California and saying he literally wanted to come here because it doesn't have regulations. And there's so much about that that mm -hmm. hurts, yeah. like yeah. in so many ways, specifically this week. And we saw what deregulation has has done to people's livelihoods and to have someone like Elon Musk show up um, in Austin and then tell everyone to move here. Uh, I'm nervous for the future. Yeah, I mean, you look at these fantasies of them of, of these billionaire types doing this and creating these fantasy places with zero regulations, whether it's the moon or Mars or offshore new countries. And then you think to yourself, this is what they're imagining for real places with real people too, is, you know, just start from scratch somehow. And it's offensive and violent and upsetting. I do remember, I just want to say before we end this, Part, and I want to thank all of you for what you've shared, your knowledge and your passion about this place. Um, I, I did read Invisible Austin, um, which, you know, friend friend of the show and my former professor, Javier Alcedo, and his students put together. And if people have a chance, I personally think it, it was a great background. Um, maybe it needs a new edition. Um Okay, well, this is this has been a heavy topic, and I know that we want to find rays of light. I don't want to miss the opportunity of having Frank with us. So just briefly, I want to let you all enjoy a little bit of a talk on the Australian Open. Um, <laughs> who wants in? Because I feel like it could be any one of you. <laughs> Frank? 
Uh, well, the men's final is irrelevant, so I won't comment on it. You know, the men's game is it boring. Is so, it is so boring. The men's boring. game is boring. <laughs> it is boring. It is uh, very boring. And I'm not boring. trying to, you know, you know pose as a, as a pseudo-feminist or something. It's boring. You know, even Rafa is boring to me now, you know, because, like, the notion of somebody winning, you know, 50 majors really doesn't compel me. Um, you know, we, we saw some, you know, some you know, Medvedev and some other folks ascend on the men's side. But, you know, the game, you know those matches were relevant. The real star of this show is yet again Naomi Osaka. And of course, Serena Williams, right? And so, um, you know, Osaka's ascendancy in the game, you know, is, is fabulous and wonderful. And, you know, Howard Bryant said it so well in, in this video post he put yesterday. He said that Osaka has, quote, she has embraced the championship altitude and has unapologetically accepted the challenge of being the game's social conscience. She's able to kind of blend those things together in ways that even Serena and Venus did not do, you know? Um, and I think that's what makes her special, aside from her awesome awesome talent which we saw you know yet again at this major you know she's won her fourth major um she's going to win more uh and you know i'm not going to you know give you the kind of chris Everett. oh she's so humble and wonderful this sort of thing that the, the folks on tv like to say i'm sure amira can handle that we don't need to do anything like chris we everett will never copy chris <laughs> everett here frank uh but you know like i don't i don't even listen to the i just watch without the sound because it's astonishing how these announcers just just announced the game, these matches for 20 years plus. I mean, talk about white privilege in sports media. It's just astonishing to see my, white mediocrity, uh, you know, uh, performed every single time you see an ESPN or, you know, a televised tennis um, match, right? But, uh, you know, that, that aside, Osaka is amazing. And, and Serena's, you know, not winning the 24th is disappointing, you know, of course. But, but at the same time, you know, she don't have to win any more majors. You know, she's, no, she's exactly. the greatest ever already. And if she doesn't, you know, if she does, wonderful. I would love to see her overtake Margaret Court. You have seen my texts over the years, like lamenting Mar Margaret Court still being the number one uh, uh, player in terms of majors uh, one in tennis history. But, but Serena doesn't have to prove anything anymore. And, you know, she also has the right to just keep on too. And so, you know, that's my feeling about Serena. Yeah. She lost in a semifinal. Can I just say this here? Exactly. Please do. I cannot stand. I understand I understand as a journalist, like asking the questions, but like people obsessing over whether or not she is retiring. And if she does retire, good for her. Like, I don't, I mean, whatever she wants to do, that is fine. But the idea that she should, because she lost in the semi, she was one of the top four players at this tournament. Like she is still a phenomenal tennis player. She's not Serena of seven years ago. Maybe that Serena could have beaten Osaka. I don't know. Like Osaka was fabulous in this tournament. Uh, someone posted a great graphic on Twitter of four matches, one in each of the tournaments that she won, each of the Grand Slams, where she was down huge in a, in a match and came back to win and then eventually win the Grand Slam. Like she has tenaciousness. She can come from behind. She's got the mental um, ability. We saw her serve was fantastic against Serena. That was a real delight to watch. I mean, it failed her at certain points as everyone serve does when they're in major matches. But like, man, I just, she's not the Serena of seven years ago, but she's still so good. And you know what? If she wants to play and lose in the first round of every tournament, then I'm okay with that too. <laughs> I just don't understand. I mean, I get where the narrative's coming from. I just fucking hate it and I wish it would stop. Well, it's so frustrating. And me and Jess were screaming about this the other day. But it's so frustrating because also, like, we miss how her game has also transformed. Like, her feet, which has always been, like, the mm -hmm. bane of my existence. Like, she's she was moving better. All of the AO. <laughs> like, so often like what we see and her conditioning like these are the things right the way that she's like okay how do I have to reinvent my game to stay in the game and that is magical to watch like I don't give a damn about all of this posturing about Serena's farewell like fuck that like also excuse me like she like I just have to underscore this we move the goalposts so far, right? It's like you have to win 24 or else there's no point of playing, which is ridiculous. Like just like Onnit's had just the most ridiculous idea. Do you know how many people enter these slams and don't win? Like literally everybody but one person. Like literally everybody but one person. And so, I mean, also I would I would just say like this, the semi with, with Serena and Naomi was clearly the final. And um, I got up briefly at like 3.30 in the morning to watch Naomi like in a haze of, of sleep play. But it was so, it was such a joy to watch them play. Um, it was so frustrating, of course, to hear the comments and the match 
calling and all of that. It's just it's just bullshit. But them playing is is magic. It's literally the definition of of catching rays of joy. And I'm so how lucky we are uh, to see that. Yeah, I just want to jump in on that to see the match. It was just a relief to see the match happen as, as opposed to what happened, you know, in 2018, a horrifying U.S. Open, right? Uh, and watching them, I mean, it's magical, the energy, even if it's a straight said win. And even as you saw, you know, Osaka take control of that match, it, you know, the energy that they bring, both of them, uh, to see this up and coming young player, you know, playing this legend. Uh, it's just it's just great theater, you know, and it and it, it certainly you know distracted me this week from all the suffering we talked about earlier, <laughs> you know that was going on in Texas this week. Yeah, that was funny. I was live tweeting it. My friend Dan, who lives here with me, said that it was like made him feel better to see me doing the normal thing that I do. Um, yeah, I think there's always something. <sighs> There's something just so wonderful about the, we know that Naomi plays tennis because Serena played tennis and there's something about that legacy on court. Uh, And then to hear in her post, Matt, I think after she won, maybe. Me, I feel like the biggest thing I want to achieve is, um, this is going to sound really odd. Hopefully I play long enough to play a girl that said, that I was once your favorite player or something. For me, I think that's the coolest thing that could ever happen to me. I think I have those feelings of, you know, watching my favorite players. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to play Lee Na, but um, yeah, I, I just think that that's how the sport moves forward. It's not that it's not just about winning these matches, but about expanding the game and like what the game looks like and who's able to play it and that Naomi has taken that on too because she she sees it in Serena and like connects all those things is just such a a lovely part of it and I just want to go back to Frank's point that the men's game is really boring Uh, to once again advocate for all three set matches I have just so over five set matches and the glorification of them uh, and I just think the women's game is so far superior to the men's because they play three sets and so they got to get their shit together that's so funny because my like part of when I watched this, like when I watched Serena and Naomi play, I was like, oh my gosh, like I just need another set because so often I feel. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed especially in the second set like the momentum can shit like <laughs> i know but you say that for that match but if all I know, of them I know, were like that that's them, the I problem it's, but it's like, like yes. those are the moments where i'm like i need more the federer nadal at wimbledon in 2008 of oh, glorious i watched that thing from beginning to end <laughs> yes but that's not enough for all the isner matches like it's just not <laughs> <laughs> well said well said i just want more i always want more of them Oh, sports. Oh, Texas. Oh, sports. Thanks to you all for delving into this with me today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. 
but this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit BetterHelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. This Thursday on our interview show, I'm going to speak with my old friend, Benji Hart, who's a Chicago-based author, artist, and educator. Their work centers on Black radicalism, queer liberation, and prison abolition. We're going to talk about the intersection of sports and police and militarism. Um, We're going to talk about how we can think about concepts of abolition in the sporting world. And part of this is an effort to imagine and reimagine what radical futures and Black futures look like. So here Here's a little tease of my interview with Benji Hart, and I hope you check out the full thing on Thursday. And I think your examples of the ways that these punitive measures in sports are unequal, um, and that even when folks are engaging in what we could argue are non-carceral solutions to dealing with uh, harm and violence, there is still deep embedded racism, deep embedded misogyny, deep embedded uh, homophobia and transphobia in terms of how those how those consequences are distributed, who has the power to distribute them, um, who gets punished for what, there's, there's still tons of harm and violence and racism happening there, even though technically a, a police department isn't involved or someone going to prison isn't involved. Um, there's still, as you say, an investment in punishment um, that is still inherently racist, sexist, homophobic, and and all these other things. Now it's that time in the show where we take everything that we haven't already expressed our, our anger toward and throw it on a metaphorical burn pile. I'm gonna start today. It's a searing and quick burn which is there is a wonderful tournament, She Believes Cup, and I am um, sad that some of the teams couldn't participate, but happy that it meant the Argentine national women's football team was invited. They aren't convoked very often, so it's wonderful to see them get an opportunity to play at that level. I want to burn the fact that there's pretty clear retribution Um, Since the 2019 Women's World Cup towards the players on the Argentine national team who complained about the conditions, I wrote about it at the time for The Guardian and The Equalizer. Their schedules were written on a napkin, slipped under their hotel door. They had very little training. The um, conditioning and the physical therapists that were there were not qualified to be there. There's a whole host of things that were awful about that. Their um, star, who used to play for the Washington Spirit, Estefania Benini, was the captain and the most vocal. And immediately, um, just three weeks following that tournament, where she performed wonderfully, she was inexplicably dropped from the roster. She has not been called again. She is not at the She Believes Cup. 
it might be injury and it might not, but I want to burn the fact that we can't know because of the bullshit that surrounds this. And hats off to the announcers of She Believes Cup for trying to learn about the Argentine national team. But no, it is not fully professionalized. No, these women do not make a living in Argentina and a living wage playing football. So um, Estefania was recently named one of the players of the decade by a number of organizations in women's football and it's just a glaring absence and I'm super pissed and um, I want to burn it. Burn. 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 Amira. I had too many things I wanted to burn this week like from Chrissy Everett talking about Serena Naomi to Sean Hannity and his like plane and tennis story. Like there was so much. But then I saw Michelle Wee, Michelle Wee West now issue a statement that was talking about um, comments that Rudy Giuliani had made. And I was like, what did he say? So I dove deep into the story and knew I had to burn it. So <laughs> Rudy Giuliani went on Steve Bannon's podcast. This is just going to be a cast of the deplorables. Ru- Rudy Giuliani goes on Steve Bannon's podcast, The Worm, to remember Rush Limbaugh, who died. Mm. And they are talking about and sharing stories remembering Rush. And the story that popped into Rudy Giuliani's head that he really wanted to share was about one time they were golfing. They were golfing together with Roger Ailes and Marvin Schengen. And um, they were paired with Michelle Wee. And they were, he told this quote unquote funny story about how they spent a lot of this charity golf match trying to avoid the paparazzi before realizing they weren't trying to take pictures of him and Rush, et cetera, but that Michelle Wee um, was really the target of that. And so he shares this story and he says, quote, on the green is Michelle Wee and she's getting ready to putt. Now she's gorgeous. She's six feet and she has a strange putting stance. She bends all the way over in her panty show. And this was the funny anecdote that he wanted to share. Um, I'm not even going to touch on the fact that like your friend or whatever dies and the anecdote that you want to share is that you and Rush and uh, Roger Ailes and everybody was golfing together and you objectified a professional golfer is like the one story, the anecdote that like really comes to your mind to remember, like says everything you need to know about these folks, right? It's like that in itself is disgusting, but I do want to highlight Michelle's response because I think that that is absolutely what should be centered here. Michelle said, what should be discussed is the elite skill level that any women play at, not what we wear or look like. My putting stance six years ago was designed to improve my stats. And guess what? She won a fucking U.S. Open that year. Um, it was not an invitation to run a look up my skirt. Nike makes skirts with shorts built in for this exact reason so that women can feel confident and comfortable playing a game that we love. This whole thing is ridiculous. It's ugh. It's disgusting michelle obviously deserves better professional women athletes and women in general deserve better we obviously know the bar is the basement with these men so why would we think that they would think even in this moment of death and and rememory that anything else would come to mind because we obviously know that cobwebs exist there along with all of the hatred that they harbor in their hearts and their brains and so i would like to burn that part of it down um because Blah. Burn. 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 Jessica. Here's the opening lead to a story from the Dallas Morning News this past week. Quote, the Frisco-based natural gas producer owned by Dallas billionaire Jerry Jones is cashing in on a surge in prices for the fuel as a brutal freeze grips the central U.S., leaving millions without power. The company is Comstock Resources, Inc. On a Wednesday earnings call, so this is literally in the middle of the week as all these people are suffering, the president and chief financial officer of Comstock Resources, Roland Burns, said, quote, This week is like hitting the jackpot with some of these incredible prices. Frankly, we were able to sell at super premium prices for a material amount of production. We've already discussed at length what was happening in Texas as the president of Jones Company was gleefully swimming through his pile of gold coins. We've also talked a lot on Burn It All Down about ownership models and specifically ownership of pro teams in the United States. The kind of money you have to have to own a team is enormous. And these are the kind of business practices that lead to gaining that kind of wealth, or if you've inherited it, how your daddy got his money. It felt like no surprise at all that in the middle of one of the worst weeks that I can remember, which is saying a lot given, you know, all of the weeks of the last year, that Jerry Jones popped up as a villain. If you Google Jerry Jones and racism or sexism, his catalog of bullshit unfurls right before your eyes. 
check out what he said about the national anthem. It's just it's just a rolling pile of bullshit. What went down with Comstock Resources, Inc. should be another reminder to fans that siding with owners over and above labor, the players, means you are siding with people who, who rake in the dough as others suffer. That's true of them when it comes to their actual NFL teams. And it's true when it comes to the business dealings that got them the money to own that team in the first place. So let's burn, metaphorically, Roland Burns, Comstock Resources, and Jerry Jones, and let's burn how ownership models in professional sports are structured in the U.S. Burn. 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 burn gonna keep burning that for a while burn (laughs) after all that burning let's celebrate some of the people that want to change all of those horrible things in sports i'd like to begin with the fire starters of the week the first ever south sudan women's football league launched congratulations to everyone that made that happen amira who's our spitfire of the week That goes to Draymond Green, who absolutely read the NBA for filth for the way they treat players when it comes to trades and they give teams all of the opportunities to humiliate and um, all the power to navigate trade markets for players. And then players are, in his terms, castrated when you are saying that you want a different situation or this isn't good for your mental health. You're seen as the worst person in the world. Calling out this double standard absolutely earns him the spitfire of the week. Check out a little bit what he has to say. As much as we put into this game to be great, to come out here and be in shape, to produce for fans every single night, and most importantly, to help your team win, do you think that doesn't affect someone mentally? But as players, we're told to, ah, no, you can't say that. You can't say this, but teams can. It goes along the same lines of when, when everyone wants to say, oh, man, that young guy can't figure it out. But no one wants to say the organization can't figure it out. Jessica, Fire Lord of the Week. Naomi Osaka, the newest investor in the North Carolina Courage, won her fourth Grand Slam tennis title this weekend when she defeated Jen Brady 6-4-6-3. Osaka has now won all the slam finals she has made it to, four out of four. According to Ben Rothenberg, only three tennis players have ever done that, winning their first four slam finals in the open era. The list is Monica Seles, Roger Federer, and now Naomi Osaka. That's beautiful. Goodness. Amira, do we have some heart warmers this week? We do. We want to send a hearty congratulations to Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris, who expanded their family and brought home a little baby. Um, And while we all know that transracial adoption, especially a very public one, is um, complicated for many reasons, I also want to hold space for the meanings of loss um, and the loss um, that the baby's birth family is experiencing as well as, you know, all of the congratulations and heartwarming happiness um, for Ashlyn and Allie. I do want to say what really warmed my heart was that the public post announcing um, the baby's arrival also came with a a nod and a letter to the birth mother. Um, And to me, that is a huge step forward for (laughs) adoption advocacy um, and and critical engagement with the adoption uh, industry complex. And so that aside, absolutely heartwarming. The baby already has their own fashion Instagram page. Um, So congratulations to all of you. Can I get a drum roll, please? The torchbearer of this week is Momoko Nojo, the young woman who was integral to the hashtag don't be silent campaign that ousted the former head of the Tokyo Olympics committee, Mori, who had made a series of sexist comments that are trash and garbage, and she was smart and inspiring. So continue to follow what is probably going to be a whole lot of innovative work on her part. And in these very dark times, we do like to talk about what's good in our world. Jessica. Yeah, well, you know, hard week. Uh, but today, right now, thrilled the sun is out. 
Uh, we went on lots of walks yesterday because we could, and we didn't have to put on 24 pounds of clothing in order to do it. Uh, so that's great. My friend Mobley, who I've talked about a lot on the show, I was in a couple of his music videos. There's one more to come that that I am in. He held off releasing his newest EP because of COVID. It was supposed to come out at South by last year, and so he's waited and waited and waited, and then it was it dropped on Friday. It was like the worst timing ever. He lives here in Austin. He went through it all, like all of us did. Um, the EP is wonderful, and I'm just so excited for Mobley. And then I wanted to mention uh, my family. The stuff that we watched this week to sort of get through, again, fortunate that we were able to watch anything. Uh, But the the thing we really turned to this week was a show that we watched on Hulu. It's an ABC show about extreme mini golf called Holy Moly. And Rob Riggle and Joe Tessitore are the commentators. And it just makes me laugh endlessly. Like, I just think Rob Riggle's delivery... Did he get stuck in your anus? ...is so funny. And there were just so... Many dumb, bad jokes. Can somebody reach up in your anus and get it? They have a hole called yes. Uranus. It okay. looks like the planet Uranus. Well, I just I just don't want your anus to get clogged. They make every joke Especially possible about that, and that was really lovely this week. And then on Friday night, Aaron and I rented the movie Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which again is like, I'm not going to say there's anything smart about what we watched, but we liked it so much. We laughed so hard on Friday night that we actually then also watched it again on Saturday. So that's how that that has definitely been good for us this week. And none of you can see, but um, Jessica's face is simply beaming and a little red from telling your anus jokes. Um, so <laughs> that is darling. I'm going to start so that Amira gets to finish this off. Cause I kind of feel like we'll have a little bit of a tag team situation here. Um, first I'm really happy that the club Colo Colo, one of the most, um, helpful during the pandemic to Chileans. It's a football club. They've been around since the beginning of professionalization in 1933. And um, they were close to relegation or being dropped from the from the first division. And they just barely eked it out. And it made a ton of people happy in Chile. So I loved seeing all of that celebration. Um, and I would like to say Bad Bunny on Saturday Night Live. Ladies and gentlemen, Bad Bunny. Bad Bunny anywhere. And particularly, I love to see him bring out Rosalia, the very talented young Catalan singer um, who deserves um, a kind of central place in, 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 in the boom in kind of emo trap music that he represents. So I was really happy to see her front and center there and I appreciate that he's always bringing people along whether it's like Afro-Panamanian Satch you know and putting his face just in front of him and it's something that I love about Bad Bunny um, just in general so it made me very very happy and I feel like maybe it made Amira happy too it did it made me very happy for a number of reasons but also like if you haven't seen their performance, please go watch it. It's very, very sensual at the end, which has spawned <laughs> the best memes of like the reactions to it, like people being pretending like what Bad Bunny's girlfriend like is thinking when she's watching. <laughs> it's the funniest. It's, it was really fun to watch, but also just shout out to his um, uh, cameo in the she shanty bit <laughs> yeah. with Regan Jean, where he's the navigator and he says, "Well, the ocean's that, that way." way? And that way, and kind of, and kind of all around. <laughs> and you just have to watch it to see what he pulls out as his map. It's it's a gem. I I loved it. It was it was wonderful. Yeah. So my what's good this week? Um, Black History Month is almost over, um, which means that a good portion of my talking talk talking things are also done as well um i had a wonderful time speaking at virtually at at vanderbilt with our friend andrew marinus and um friends of the show from the black athlete pod Derek white and lou moore as well as andrea williams we had a good time uh talking um about black uh athletic activism and and pioneers i have an upcoming event at suny Cortland, which i'm looking uh forward to this week as well as keynoting our graduate student WGSS big conference here at Penn State this next weekend on disruptions and eruptions along with Myesha Cherry. Um, that's going to be fun. I'm also really looking forward to, um, well, I'm not looking forward to it, but I am 
getting my second dose of the vaccination this week and all of the things that Brenda said before around the vaccination and how terrible the rollout is and also you know, still being anxious about it, but it is happening and it's the second dose. So I fully expect to be sick for about a day and I'm going to take it easy. Um, but I'm just really, um, thankful that, um, it's happening. And part of that has also allowed me to feel much better about booking a week away, um, and for a writing retreat in March, Um, And so the one week that I don't have all the talking shenanigans for Women's History Month, um, I'm going to go drive down um, and sit in a beach and write and finish the book. So I am looking forward to that. Well, despite the fact that we have conflicting feelings about watching sports at this time and in this juncture with a global pandemic, we do still... Um, find ourselves turning to certain games. And this um, is going to drop on Tuesday. So tomorrow you can watch Canada versus Brazil and U.S. versus Argentina in women's football at the She Believes Cup. Also, A&M versus South Carolina in women's basketball to um, sort of struggle for the top of the SEC. And that's taking place on Sunday, February 28th. So those are some of the things that we are watching this week. That's it for us here at Burn It All Down for this week. You can find Burn It All Down on any of the places that you find your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com or check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. You can find previous episodes, transcripts, and links to our Patreon. Just as always, we need to thank our patrons for their generous support. And, you know, that's just the, that's the evergreen tweet. This episode was produced by the amazing Tressa Verstig, and our socials are done by Shelby Weldon. We are so grateful for everyone listening and your support. On behalf of all of us, burn on and not out.